Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Well, today we are excited to speak with Julia Swig, who's an award-winning author of books on Cuba, Latin America, and American foreign policy. She served as a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations for 15 years. Her writings appeared in numerous outlets, including the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Washington Post, Foreign Affairs, and the Nation. Swig holds undergraduate degrees from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and a master's degree and a doctorate from Johns Hopkins University. She is a senior research fellow at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin and the creator, host, and executive producer of the ABC News and Best Case Studios podcast series, In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson. And we are here to talk about the really brilliant book, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight by Julia Swig. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here with you, Peniel. Thanks very much for having me. You know, when I read this book, I was really um, surprised at just how much more that I learned about Lady Bird Johnson in the sense of you really portray her as both this very, very important and influential first lady, but also this person who was a citizen and an advocate for the environment, an advisor and counselor to her husband, President Lyndon Baines Johnson, very, very intelligent very, very forceful, somebody who had strength and resilience in ways that her public image didn't convey. I'm interested, what inspired you to do this kind of research on Lady Bird Johnson, who's usually not thought of as as that essential first lady in the way of someone like Eleanor Roosevelt, but I think when somebody reads your book, it'll change and sort of shift their appreciation for Lady Bird Johnson. Well, thank you for that introduction. And that is, of course, a really essential question. Two parts. Why, why a first lady and why a ladybird? And the, the, that has to do with my own experience in some sense, which is in your intro, you noted that I had worked in foreign policy for many, many years. And that's a very gendered place to work. And my experience over many years of being one of the only women in the room was that I, I came away just feeling I wanted to find a topic that would let me enter into the matter of women and power and how women navigate different kinds of power and use their power and deploy their power or dodge power or manipulate power. And in writing about Cuba and Latin America and American foreign policy, it's tends to be at least in the diplomatic history vein or just sort of straight, what is the White House or Congress doing on X matter or how to shape what they're doing on X matter? That's a male story for the most part. So I I pulled back from that to try to find a way to get into the women in power theme without having a first lady in mind and certainly without Lady Bird Johnson in mind, but as a, you know, we want to find archival material that's new, that tells a new story, that brings a new perspective maybe onto an old story. And when I learned that Lady Bird had kept recorded audio diary the entire time she was in the White House, and that most of that material had been completely unexcavated or unmined, unread, unfiltered by the Johnson historian canon. And then started getting into the material itself, which just shows all of these new angles on the Johnson presidency and certainly on her. 
that really sealed the deal for me. And so talk to us about um, Claudia Alta Ladybird Taylor <laughs> and, you know, the origins. There's so, it's such an interesting, I think, childhood and adolescence. So I want you to talk about her pre-LBJ. We're going to get to LBJ. But, you know, who, who was Claudia Alta, who becomes Lady Bird? Why the nickname? And how did her growing up impact who she became? That latter question is tough always, right? I mean, we can extrapolate, but she was raised in the Deep South on the border of East Texas and Louisiana. And she had parents, both of whom were from Alabama, who eloped together because her father was a tenant farmer on her mother's family's pine and cotton property in Alabama. She grew up in the county adjacent to the county where Harper Lee grew up. So very much a a place where race and class lines were thickly drawn. Her mother, when her parents left and and moved to Karnak, Texas, she only had her mother in her life for about four or five years until her mother died. And she was raised by the, the children or grandchildren of enslaved people and by her father. She had two older brothers who were at boarding school and out of the picture. And her father brought an aunt from Alabama to help raise her. Both the mother and the aunt were quite cultured and literate and readers and who followed music and theater. And And they were they went up to the, the W.K. Kellogg Institute in Indiana for health rituals that Lady Bird participated in, which is an important part of who she became. But her early childhood is one of being a loner and doing that in the Deep South in a very segregated time and place of American history. And with the book, you you start with this chapter, The Surrogate, and I, w- I want to come back to that and exactly what do you mean by that. But you compare and contrast her with Jackie Kennedy, I thought, in very, very interesting ways, in the ways they sort of help shape their husband's public careers, but also some of the the pain and the hurt that they both experienced with these partners. Let's talk about that in terms of the start, even before getting into the weeds of the Johnson presidency. Usually mm-hmm. she's the wife of a congressman. She's the wife of a senator who becomes Senate majority leader. She's the wife of the vice presidential candidate who very much um, wants to be vice president, really inexplicably to some people because it's not a job with any kind of power, but he's going to become obviously the president, but no one could have imagined that happening. So who is Lady Lady Bird Johnson in the sense of not just Claudia Alta Taylor, and how does she grow into that role of being Lyndon Johnson's political partner even before the White House? Well, I think it's important to to recognize about her that, you know, she went to college in the late 20s, early 1930s, Depression era, but she has a double major in history and journalism from the University of Texas. She was very well read and she was very bent on acquiring an education that would allow her, well before Lyndon was in her sights, to potentially not just go back to Karnak and raise a family or take care of her father, but really explore the world. And how did you explore the world as a young woman of means in the 1930s? You could be a teacher, you could be 
a journalist, you could maybe be a secretary, but attaching herself to Lyndon Johnson catapulted her into Washington, D.C. and politics of an era that was a very hopeful era in a sense. It was the period of the New Deal when the Roosevelt's, Eleanor's another, that's another marriage, another presidential marriage that was complicated and fraught. And you asked about Jackie Kennedy, you know, I'll leave Eleanor aside for a second, but the the Jackie and Lady Bird similarities are often overlooked because the contrasts are so massive. But the similarities to your question about these fraught men that they were with is that Washington is a place where men in power very often helped one another hide their sexual liaisons. And that was certainly the case of Jack and Lyndon. And Jackie and Lady Bird had to endure not just their awareness of their husband's affairs, but also multiple miscarriages and the desire to have a family and some degree of privacy. But the difference between Jack, one difference between Jackie and Lady Bird is that Lady Bird had a, you know, it's a, it's a funny part of the marriage of the Johnsons. She became, and it wasn't immediately, but she became very much part of the Johnson political operation as sort of one of the most senior staffers, although surely unpaid for, for most of it in the traditional sense. And so she realized that in order to keep up with Lyndon's whirlwind of activity and brilliance and political ambition, she would need not just to be a traditional spouse, but a participant spouse in that ambition. And I think throughout, Julia, you show how she is often both his wisest counselor, but also she bears the brunt of his, at times, erratic behavior and personality. I mean, you you talk about how he's plagued by heart disease, but also really depression. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so many highs and lows with the Johnson um, presidency, but just his own character that you describe here. Yeah, I wonder about that. Like, you know, she, she has to really withstand a lot in order to keep both that marriage together. But she's the person who's constantly trying to make sure he doesn't really um, just give it all up, which he eventually does, right? By March um, 31st of 1968, he does publicly what he had always been threatening to do, even after Jack Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, He had threatened not to run in 1964. And many people felt the only reason he didn't is that that would have paved the way for Bobby Kennedy to be president. You know, um, the trajectory, if we're going to jump into, before we jump into the White House years and what was triggered by the JFK assassination, you put your finger on something really important, which is her role in helping keep him on the rails in terms of his physical and emotional and mental health. You know, I think today we would certainly characterize his mental health as one that suffered from very significant bouts of depression. And um, there are other people that have worked with him that have talked about his depression and it did fall to her. She came to learn how to handle it. She was not a person who, who, who suffered from depression herself, um, but she spent a lot of time helping him manage his. The heart attack, the heart disease, you know, his father and his uncle both died when they were 60 of heart failure and LBJ came into the White House 
when he was 56. So between having had a massive heart attack in 1955 when he was already majority leader. So the, the overlay of health concerns was, it was always a big cloud for them. And, and Lady Birds uh, was smart enough to, and tough enough to learn how to handle it. And he was wise enough to realize that he couldn't do it really anything without her. Now, when we think about even before the White House years, how did she help in the 1960 campaign? Because you talk about that in the sense that, you know, Lyndon goes from being a Senate majority leader to really having to play second fiddle to the Kennedys, who are at times warm and gracious and at times um, not with them. Yeah, you know, she talked about it in her oral histories as the moment in Los Angeles at the convention in 1960 when Jack proposed they run as VP on the ticket, you know, it was like a nettle stuck in LBJ's throat. You know, he couldn't swallow it and he couldn't cough it up. It was just this horrible feeling of being stuck where if you stay as majority leader and have said no to the guy that becomes the president in the White House, you're sort of, you know, politically emasculated because the White House will have its own agenda if you're having a majority of in both the Congress and the the White House. If you accept, it means giving up, accept the vice presidential slot on the ticket. It means giving up so much power for what everyone has described as the worst job in Washington, D.C. So they were stuck and they wound up after, you know, a very storied sleepless night trying to figure it out saying yes to the proposal against Bobby Kennedy's objections, et cetera. Lady Bird in 1960, the Lady Bird Jackie story takes this new turn where Lady Bird really undertakes, and this is why I titled that chapter The Surrogate, to stand in for Jackie, who's minding a pregnancy after multiple miscarriages and doesn't really, isn't that interested in politics, doesn't want to do the rope line, doesn't have the people skills that Lady Bird has, and doesn't want to be out there schlepping around the country. Lady Bird takes Rose Kennedy and all of the sisters and takes them down to the South and not only wins Texas for them, but makes a big play in the South and in the country at large is saying, look, it's okay to have a Catholic in the presidency. It's not something that we should be scared of as Americans. And so she's a surrogate, not just for for Jackie, but for Lyndon and for Jack and has kind of a gas doing it. And so by the time Jack's in the White House and Lady Bird is second lady, she's having a much better time in the office of the vice presidency or holding that slot than, than Lyndon Johnson ever did. Now, I want to jump into the LBJ presidency, but I want to talk about, you have a great chapter, Transitions, uh, Succession, and how deft Lady Bird was in that transition. But it's safe to say, both through your book and the scholarship that I've read, uh, Lyndon Johnson was not a happy vice president. And and being vice president weren't great years, <laughs> the period from January 20th, 1961, all the way to November 22nd, 1963. It seems that he had a, a enmity with Robert Kennedy, the attorney general, Bobby Kennedy and him couldn't stand each other. Bobby basically was a kind of co-president, a kind of co-architect with JFK. He was the person mm-hmm. last in the room who, who Kennedy really listened to, the president really listened to. 
So I just want to put that out there. How did Lady Bird help keep LBJ together during the very, very unhappy vice presidency, which almost lasts for three entire years? I mean, during the vice presidency, the main role that she played on that front in terms of LBJ was a little bit impenetrable to me. You know, the the period of time that's better documented is really once the assassination catapults them into the White House. She spoke retroactively about how she had such a better time than LBJ did. And her role was mainly in the kind of, I hate to use this phrase, the social lubricant, the political role that she played both with with Jackie and with Jack and kind of keeping the channel open and always saying, you know, Lady Bird, they're public actors on the public stage. And I think of this as a lot of theater. So in theatrical improv, the rule is always say yes to your interlocutor. Lady Bird always says yes to Jack and to Jackie, but especially to anything that Jackie asks her to show up to all this ceremonial events that Jackie doesn't have the time or space or interest in doing. And I think that always say yes approach to Jackie is the way that she helps Lyndon put a good face to the extent that he could on being pretty much eviscerated in terms of the previous power he had as majority leader. I mean, there were some exceptions. He had the space portfolio and that was meaningful, but nothing like the power that he had as majority leader. And by the time Lyndon Johnson becomes president, you really show how deft Lady Bird is. I thought in two great, great pivotal moments of especially the first year of the presidency is one, the transition, where I think you show, which I've always felt even when I read Caro, you sort of contrast and juxtapose LBJ's impatience with her patience in terms of the transition. Because I think it's really, really important to say that because it is this real shocking thing that the president is assassinated. And I think one of the reasons Bobby Kennedy has a big problem with LBJ is really the alacrity that he 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 wants to assume power. Really, you could say constitutionally needs to assume power, but we're we're all still human beings, though. You know, so the Constitution can tell one thing, but this president, young father of two, has just been assassinated in cold blood in front of his wife. And it seems like Lady Bird is much more emotionally intelligent about what needs to occur so that the Johnsons don't appear to be some kind of usurpers to this fallen king's throne. Well, I think she's conscious from the get-go of the need to avoid that appearance. And, you know, Lyndon, we know it was clear before I did my research, very much so, made more so by her own material, that LBJ was grousing about wanting to get in the into the White House as quickly as possible. Now, there were only 14 days between the assassination and the day they moved in. And so it really fell to Lady Bird. And he was obviously, from Cairo, we see, very, very busy with his office set up in the old executive office building, working in every way that he could as president from the jump. But what Lady Bird did was manage the, let's say, the public choreography of that transition. And she did it. And this, Camille, I found really poignant to take a look at how Lady Bird and Jackie did that together. You know, there's been a lot that we've seen in both movies and writing about Jackie's establishment of the Camelot mythology and the immediate aftermath 
of Jack's death. And that's all true. But what was going on between the two of them was this kind of excruciating dance to have Jackie and the kids move out and Lady Bird and her kids, who were teenagers, and her husband obviously, move in all publicly. I mean, there was a lot of private stuff that went on. And and there's a particular, we produced a podcast, as you mentioned about this as well. And it was very poignant to do this because Lady Bird's tapes were audio to hear her talk about this moment on the Tuesday after the assassination going to the White House and having Jackie take her on the tour of the family quarters and talking about, well, this is Caroline's room and this is John John's room and ladies talking about which will be Lucy's and which will be Linda Bird's. And then they walk into a room and there are the boots of the riderless horse. And so the mood shifts from kids and wallpaper to Jack's death. And Jackie talks about Jack in the first person and neither of them correct it, but Lady Bird (laughs) records it in the aftermath. And so it just, it gives you a sense of their joint, but also very separate and isolated enterprise in making that transition work. Lady Bird for Lyndon, who's still alive, and Jackie for Jack, who's now dead. So I found it very poignant. And once she's in the White House, you document her role in the 1964 election. You document how she comes to evolve and see herself in the position, especially once they are elected as first lady. I want to talk about that evolution, both her as a counselor, but then you know, you really look, I think, make us reconsider her as this really this environmental activist instead of the idea of Lady Bird and sort of the beautification of Washington, D.C. with the flowers. And obviously at UT, we have the Lady Bird Wildflower Center. So the flowers were really part of a bigger objective. So I, I want to talk about sort of her growth in the role of First Lady and also this idea of being this kind of urban environmental activist in DC, very segregated city, a lot of black poverty. And they come in, the Johnsons come into office right when the civil rights movement is cresting, right? And so I want to talk about that in terms of how she is growing against the backdrop of this real maelstrom that continues to get more chaotic and tumultuous day by day. That's a that's a great introduction. Do you want to go back though to her role in 64 in terms of will he run, will he not run or should yes. he just die yeah, no, the environment? Yeah, no, we go into okay. yes, yes, cuz I thought that was pivotal. Yeah, in 1964, there was no vice president. And I'm not saying that Lady Bird became the vice president, but Lyndon was operating without a partner in the White House. Lady Bird was his partner. And there were at least two moments in 64 and then one in 65 and then later in 68, but it's different. But those two moments in 64 when LBJ had very, very serious doubts about whether he should run in the 1964 presidential election. And the second moment comes right before the convention in summer of 1968, August, excuse me, 64. But the first one that was so surprising to me was to see that in May of 1964, before the first civil rights bill was passed, 
before the war on poverty had been declared, not least of which funded, really before the, the Johnson Great Society agenda had been set out, Lyndon's looking around and looking at Vietnam in particular, and great metaphor, but true, he has a terrible toothache. And this is <laughs> the ache of his whole approach, thinking about the presidency. And he asks Lady Bird to lay out a document for him, which I took the liberty of renaming the Huntland Strategy Memo, but I found it in a folder just called Letters, Mrs. Johnson to the President, or Campaign Letters. And it's a nine-page handwritten memo that's dated May 14th, 1964, in which she lays out to him the pros and cons of running or not running, gives him her advice, which is that he should run, and says to him very pointedly, you should run, you'll very likely win. And then in February or March of 1968, you can announce that you won't be running for a second term. And of course, Peniel, we all know that that's precisely what he did. But I don't think we knew until now, really, that she had mapped out the arc of his presidency as early as four months into their White House tenure. And that really, for me, set the tone or raised the game to me, showed me how much he relied on her, her influence, and also her standing, so that when she decides, once he is elected on his own right, what her big policy issue is going to be, she has the standing with him to really take the ball and run with it. And that's where, as you say, she kind of grows into this urban environmental activist, which is a complete, again, you asked me why Lady Bird. I mean, I was completely surprised to see that the word beautification and the emphasis on flowers were really euphemisms for a much deeper environmental agenda that wove together or sort of emerged, as you say, in this context of the cresting civil rights movement in the United States. Talk to us about the White House Arts Festival, which takes place on June 14th, 1965. You've got a striking picture from the White House lawn of members of the Joffrey Ballet leaping across the South Lawn. In front I love that photograph. Me yeah. too. Sculpture by Alexander Calder. So in a lot of ways, you know, Lady Bird was very much interested in art and very cultured and very, you know, sophisticated woman and educated. But we usually think of that in the context of Jackie Kennedy. So talk to us about, you know, what is she doing in the White House and why is something like the White House Arts Festival so important, especially, you know, you caption this and say, you know, Lady Bird's the person who brought hundreds of the country's most celebrated contemporary artists to the White House. Yeah, it's, it's a surprise too. But if you don't mind, I just want to go back to the the environmentalism that Lady Bird undertook or or grew into and just say that, you know, urban renewal and hundreds of millions of dollars into urban renewal in the 1950s plus hundreds of millions of dollars into highway transportation, national freeways. That's the context for Lady Bird coming in and looking at American cities and looking at how infrastructure money is spent and how kind of directly it, it laid into the physical well-being of communities of color in American cities. And that was certainly the case for Washington, D.C. So she was a policy wonk and her mind space was all about taking a look at you know how people's well-being is affected by direct impact 
or, or the prohibition on access to nature in American cities. And I, I say that because she was very thorough in the way she studied it and very strategic in the way she tried to build public consciousness about it. And that's very much in contrast to the matter of the White House Arts Festival. It's true, and again, sort of very surprising because we think of Jackie Kennedy and the Kennedys as the stewards of high art who brought art to the White House in a way that really hadn't been done before. But in 1965, Lyndon asks her, what do you think of this? And there's a proposal on his table to try to, I guess, steal some of the Kennedy thunder or at least demonstrate that they're not a bunch of yokels in the White House and that they too can support art not just high art, but art for the people. And in fact, the Johnson presidency puts more public funds into the arts than any presidency almost since. That might have changed, but when I last looked, their their net dollars into the arts was significant. And so in 1965, when they still have, by and large, popular opinion behind them, although not sort of elite intellectual opinion, it's starting to fray over Vietnam and intervention in the Dominican Republic. They host a day-long arts festival in the White House that turns into pretty much of a fiasco over Vietnam. But what you saw is the Johnsons bringing Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock and artists and writers and playwrights and dancers to the White House and to Washington for an arts festival. And they're pretty much panned because they're attacked by some of the artists and writers that come for their policies in Vietnam. And it looks like a kind of try-too-hard Texas-scale extravaganza, or at least it's reported that way. And, and it pretty much withers on the vine, doesn't have the long-term sticking power that the environmental policies they both support winds up having. And now I want to talk about, you You describe this in the chapter somewhere between the words gut and pot, Eartha Kitt's uh, appearance at the White House in 1968. And we're flash forwarding to by the time the Vietnam is roiling, Dr. King has come out against the Vietnam War in 1967. This is after the high points of civil rights, voting rights acts, and the popularity of the Johnsons. Things are beginning to curdle, and the actor, Eartha Kitt, who's very well known in the Black community and the white community, Broadway, had been on Batman as Catwoman, of course. But she very forcefully, she's invited to the White House January 18th, 1968. She speaks out against the Vietnam War. She's really not attacking Lady Bird, but the press and then the White House comes to really excoriate and vilify Eartha Kid, even though Lady Bird's response is pretty measured. Talk to us about that and what the impact of that is. And um, what is Lady Bird's role in sort of trying to shape the perception of the Eartha Kit appearance at the White House in 1968? I found this to be Lady Bird's lowest point in the Johnson presidency. I mean, one could argue that her lack of public recanting of the Vietnam War was as well. But the relationship between Lady Bird and Lyndon on Vietnam is a separate subject that merits serious discussion. On Eartha, this was just unequivocally really, really bad. And I say that having written a book that's by and large pretty sympathetic to her, as you can hear. Mm -hmm. Lady Bird had 
you know, just for context, Betty Friedan publishes The Feminine Mystique in 1963, not long before he's assassinated. JFK puts out the findings of the Presidential Commission on the Conditions of Women. That's not the exact title. The feminist movement is is coming along, but it has not been born in full flower yet at all. But Lady Bird is very interested in emphasizing women as professionals. And she holds a series of luncheons, both as second lady and then definitely in the White House with women professionals. Some of it is about supporting her husband's agenda. And some of it is just a curated feminist agenda that she wraps in a nice White House ladies luncheon, but is feminist nonetheless. So in January of 1968, though, you know, now we've had the, you know, mass uprisings in American cities for a couple of years, and you've got a a political campaign for the presidency underway. And what is the beat on the ground of the Republicans, and even in the Democratic Party to a certain extent, is how are we fighting crime in American streets? And there's a crime bill that LBJ has just introduced in the Senate the night before in his State of the Union. It's a crime bill that winds up doing a lot of damage in the country over a few decades. And Lady Bird is hosting something to to backstop her husband called Crime in American Streets. And she invites Eartha Kitt. Now, why, why Eartha Kitt? Because Eartha, this is a part of her story that I think is not so well known, has been working with her body and her money, that is teaching dance classes in Watts and doing kind of youth empowerment stuff in Anacostia in Washington, D.C. She has been working to support American kids in black communities for much of the decade and supporting the civil rights movement, all while, be, while being a global superstar. She's testified in Congress about it. She has some standing. So the White House invites her to come and give her perspective. And these luncheons are not, they always have a few speakers, but they're run, they're small enough that they're run, that there's some kind of give and take. But Eartha Kitt doesn't exactly read the room, or maybe she reads the room and she doesn't care, but she shows up at the White House thinking that she's been asked to participate in a discussion. And she comes out with a position both directed to the president who stops by and to Lady Bird that basically says, you guys, if you want to get an idea of why people are in the streets, why American kids are so unhappy, you have to look at Vietnam. It's not just urban conditions. It's not just what's happening at home. It's the connection between home and abroad. And she's really the first person that brings the a very pointed critique of Vietnam right into the the president's home at a moment of incredible tension in the country around the limitations of what's happened on the civil rights front and the sort of degradation of the American body politic because of Vietnam. So the White House goes nuts, right? This is a Black woman challenging a Southern white woman in her own home, right? It's she breaks protocol, right? You don't get out of your lane. You're supposed to only speak about what you were asked to speak about. And she brought it all together. And to your question, Peniel, about what was Lady Bird's role, you're right. If we look at the transcripts and look at what each of them said, it's all pretty measured. But there were some journalists in the room and pretty soon the public reporting on on this and then the White House spin about it went all negative, not all negative, but wound up redounding very negatively. Certainly the White House campaign to to muzzle Eartha Kitt was very effective. And it wound up 
propelling her into kind of professional exile for about a decade. Yeah, and in in certain ways, it reminded me while reading it of um, contemporary efforts to basically quiet people down and prevent teachers from teaching about American history by attacking it as CRT. Um, So just I was sad about Gregory Peck and Oh, Lady yes. Bird and people who I admire and President Johnson, I just was sad for the for, for the country to see. And, and, and in this case, it was a Democratic president, Democratic administration, not a Republican one, just telling people to basically shut up uh, in a country. Yeah, basically pride, shut up. Yeah, exactly. itself on, um, you know, freedom of speech and these ideas about liberty and democracy. So we don't have a ton of time left. That I want to talk about March 31st, 1968, because you, you've shown how she basically plotted that out. But nonetheless, there are some fits and starts. There's a speech where he's supposed to give it out, and he, he doesn't. In his memoirs, he, in 1971, he says he forgot the speech. Lady Bird says he absolutely did not forget the speech. Yeah, right I love there. that. And, and I, I believe her, you know, like the whole notion of, you know, believe, yeah, I believe her. Talk to us about that date, because that's really the end of the presidency. And one thing, you know, I'm interested in the fact that in certain ways, even after March 31st, there are parts of him that do want to run again, right? I don't think he understood how that announcement sort of robs him of power in in the presidency because you're not going to run again. So it's really, no nobody has ever done that before. And I don't think anybody ever will do that ever again. So how does she take all of that? Let's just start with one of the last things you said. When he announces at the end of March 68 that he's not going to run for a second term, that he's going to focus on the Vietnam peace talks, he's also looking at Bobby Kennedy, who has just announced that he's going to run, and Eugene McCarthy, who has just come too close for comfort in the New Hampshire primary. But then Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. And so by the time you get to the late summer of 1968 and certainly August of 68 in the Chicago convention, there's part of LBJ, which is kind of itching to be seen as the party's savior who can come in and knit it all back together. So the the big factor is Bobby's off the playing field, so to speak, when he gets to sort of the end of days in the August convention. So going backwards to Lady Bird, she's mapped it out in 1964. And so by the end of 1967, really the fall, when she's starting to really be uncomfortable, the protest against the war in Vietnam and against her, the fact that she can't get her environmental policies across because Vietnam just is taking up all the space, the fact that her two daughters, spouses that are going to Vietnam all of that kind of conspires to get her ginned up to start focusing on when is LBJ going to tell the country he's not running again. It takes her until the end of March of 1968 to get that those words to come out of his mouth. And the false start in January of 68 is precisely as you described it. But the, by the time it gets to March of 68, Lyndon's really on board and she has been you know, consulting with their some of their very close advisors very carefully without really telling them exactly what the timing could be, but just taking their pulse on what it would be like if this were to happen, talking to the doctors and talking to Lyndon kind of relentlessly about it. And LBJ got on board because, you know, remember by March of 1968, 
the country has gone the country. The national security establishment has undertaken a pretty significant policy review on Vietnam. We're just on the other side of the Tet Offensive. American cities are in like pretty much significant upheaval. And his health is top of mind because they've become grandparents. And that's the other thing I found kind of poignant, which is the fact of grandchildren really shifts things for him. He becomes this devoted grandfather. And the idea of being able to go back to the ranch and enjoy themselves, you know, wets his whistle about that he could survive not being in the arena and actually enjoy himself. And that's certainly the case she makes to him. So you you write this epilogue to survive all assaults where you look at the end of the White House years all the way to July 2007 and, you know, the arc of Lady Bird's life. What kind of life does she both have with Lyndon, but it's only really four years before his death and a much fuller sort of post-presidency, post-first lady life? What kind of life does she have and sort of what lessons does she leave us with? Well, you know, she has the kind of life that she probably longed for, which is much less of a public life. Well, first of all, as you say, he doesn't survive for many years. He dies in 1974 on the day that the Roe v. Wade decision is issued by the Supreme Court of massive heart failure. He became very depressed and very ill when he went back to the ranch. He started smoking again. 1973. 1973. Excuse me, 1973. He starts smoking again. It just unwinds pretty quickly. And she in the aftermath of his death. She keeps her foot in public life quite a bit. It's very much focused on Texas. She builds the LBJ Library and Museum as an institution. She's on the Board of Regents of the University of Texas. She's on the Board of Trustees of National Geographic. She puts a lot of her heart and soul into that Wildflower Center, which is, of course, about native plants and wildflowers, but it's also about environmental education. And she spends a lot of time traveling around the world with her daughters and her grandkids and dividing her time between the ranch, which she stays on for quite a while, even after it's been deeded to the National Park Service. And also, and I think this is pretty poignant too, rekindles her friendship with Jackie. And they see one another every summer up in Martha's Vineyard. She goes to Jackie's funeral when Jackie dies. And she lives a very, very long life. She doesn't die until 2007 when Barack Obama is running in the primaries against Hillary Clinton. And so when you think about what have you learned from Lady Bird, any final thoughts in terms of in the context of the times that we live in now, so polarized, so much division in certain ways similar to theirs, but also dissimilar any lessons gleaned? Well, you know, I mean, one lesson gleaned from Lady Bird is you got to know your brief. So somebody who, as a public figure, studied and forced herself to become as knowledgeable as possible about the things that she cared about. She was also a woman of terrific discipline, not just in terms of knowing what she needed to know, but in terms of taking care of herself her body, her mind, having time in nature, tending to her spiritual needs. I don't mean God needs, I mean sort of humanity, her humanity and well-being. And then also, you know, she kept a sense of humor. 
that's something to be appreciated. And I would say to speak to the matter of the tumultuous times, you know, one thing is that she was very constrained by the expectations of the role of the first lady. And we still have not had a woman as president. And I think until we have that, whoever is in the White House's partner is going to be stuck with the kind of constraints that Lady Bird and pretty much everybody since has been stuck with in various different ways. And sometimes I found myself, Peniel, wishing that, especially on the environmental policy matter, she had found a way to be significantly more explicit about what she meant behind that word beautification and all those flowers. All right. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this conversation. We've been discussing Lady Bird Johnson Hiding in Plain Sight with author Julia Swig. Julia Swig is an award-winning author of books on Cuba, Latin America, and foreign policy. She's written for numerous publications, including the New York Times and the Atlantic and the Washington Post. She's a senior research fellow at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, and the creator, host, and executive producer of the ABC News and Best Case Studios podcast, In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson. I would definitely tell people to both read this book, listen to the podcast. It's a brilliant book. You're such a great storyteller, <laughs> Julia. So it's been oh, thank you, been great, thank you so um, much. Taking lessons, me for for my next one. <laughs> it's it's been great to read and and to learn from you. So thank you for discussing this with us on race and democracy. Oh, I'm so happy to be here with you, Peniel. Please let's do it again soon. Definitely, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.